Welcome back to the Frank James Podcast. You guessed it. My name is Frank James. And today's very special guest is JJ McCullough, a YouTuber who I've only recently discovered and I can't believe I've been missing his channel from my life for so long. His channel is about countries, cultures, and Canada. What do you think about that? Some of his most popular videos include weirdest national anthems, all about Canadian accents. Oh, and I just made that joke. Dangerous opinions in Canada, my troubles with Quebec. All about Ireland, the ignored country. Describing all the Democrat presidential candidates and many, many more. But JJ isn't just a YouTuber, he is also a political commentator and a columnist for the Washington Post. Why don't we just jump right into the interview? That seems like the thing to do. All right, well, JJ, thanks so much for joining me on this very special podcast episode of the Frank James Podcast. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so I just discovered you very recently on YouTube and have since been watching every video that I could of yours. Uh, it's, it's a little difficult to describe exactly what your channel is because you talk about Canada a lot, your home country. Mm. You talk about other things like flags. You talk about <laughs> uh, uh, politics in Canada, the U.S., and around the world. So what is it for you when you're making a video that you're like, oh, yeah, this is a J.J. McCullough video? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, because it is sort of something that I struggle with a lot, you know, sort of how when I meet new people, it's like, oh, I have a YouTube channel. Oh, what's your channel about? And it's like, mm, well, you know, and I sort of give a kind of broad summary like you do. I mean, I, I the way like my official tagline is like countries, cultures and Canada, which uh -huh. is sort of something that I've been thinking about, because I am very interested in sort of questions of culture, like. When you're a Canadian, you, or at least the sort of Canadian that I am, you know, you're very sort of hyper aware of the fact that you live in a, you know, relatively small and easily overlooked country. And that has made me just kind of very fascinated in the way that sort of countryhood manifests and the way we think about what it is to be in a country, what it is to have an identity as part of a country, what it is to have a cultural identity as being a sort of a citizen of a country. And so I guess I'm kind of interested in the ways that 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 sort of identity manifests. And so one of the reasons why I'm interested in things like flags and national anthems and, you know, money and different national foods and this kind of stuff is because that's sort of one way that we sort of answer those questions of what it means to be from somewhere, what it means to identify with a place. And one of the reasons why I do so much about Canada is not necessarily because I'm like Mr. Rara, you know, super ultra patriot. It's just because, you know, Canada is the country that I live in. And so it's kind of an interesting case study to me to sort of see the way that sort of Canada conceptualizes itself and these kind of different ideas of Canadian identity manifest. And obviously politics is a big uh, sort of uh, component of that sort of national identity. And that's why I talk so much about politics. It's like you t look at these little physical objects or symbols and use those as a way of describing like what what life is like in general for a particular culture or country. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, uh, you know, I get a lot of mail from my viewers. I like getting mail from my viewers because uh, they always send me these big sort of boxes that are basically full of cultural objects from their community. And these are really quite fascinating to receive because I'm really interested in this idea that culture and identity can be reduced to sort of, uh, you know, just to, to physical objects. And whether that's like, you know, that there's some sort of popular fast food chain that's very ubiquitous in your city or, or community or, or even country, you know, that there's sometimes there's a sort of like beloved uh, celebrity that comes from your community and so that they put them on souvenirs all over the place, you know, and then there's sort of like more sort of old fashioned cultural objects like uh, uh, sort of handicrafts, you know, folk art, there's right. some sort of traditional sculpture or figurine or, or things like that. I, I love that stuff. And, and I love traveling because immediately when I travel, you know, I'm less interested in sort of seeing the, the historic landmarks or, or, you know, the museums or things like that, even though those are very cool. But I'm always interested in like, what are sort of the objects that are ubiquitous to this community that are very proud and sort of uh, embraced by that community, but are not necessarily well known outside of it. And I, I just find, you know, it, it kind of gamifies <laughs> the world <laughs> in a way that I find very satisfying. Yeah, well, it, that, it's interesting that you point that out, because it's like, 
a lot of times when you're like, what's the culture of this place? You know, some European country, for example, and they trot out the old, uh, you know, folk costumes from 200 <laughs> years ago. But it's more like culture is what makes a place feel like home, you know, mm. which isn't going to be the costumes from 200 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I can give you a good example of this. So I yeah. was just in I was just in Montreal uh, last week, you know, uh, right. the second biggest city in Canada. They and, love you there. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, it's part of it's part of Quebec. It's, so it's part of the, the French part of Canada, which, you know, I have my own sort of history with. <laughs> Get into that. Yeah. But anyway, like it's, it's a good example because, you know, Montreal is part of Quebec, part of French Canada. And it's true. Like there's a lot of sort of like stereotypes associated with what it means to be French Canadian and, and all of this kind of thing in, you know, traditional costumes, traditional food and that kind of thing. But what I found fascinating was one thing that the Montrealers amongst themselves really identify as part of their culture is the the construction. You know, the construction is so ubiquitous in Montreal for a number ah. of reasons and the city is always being sort of torn up and they're rebuilding the streets and it gets to the point where like, you know, they have like, you can buy little souvenirs of like the traffic cones because in Montreal they have these very distinctive looking traffic cones. <laughs> and so like I bought a salt and pepper shaker that was shaped in the traffic cones. They have some sort of comic strip that's kind of popular there. It's like about the adventures of the little Montreal traffic cone character, wow. like things like that. Like this is like this is not necessarily something that like you know the cultural attaché of Montreal would be promoting at like a cultures of the world uh, you know UN festival or something. <laughs> but it's nevertheless it's something that's that that the Montrealers can immediately appreciate the significance of and 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 yeah it it does embody something about what their home is and. And what it means to them, and and that's the kind of stuff that I'm I'm just really really fascinated by, and and because once you can kind of understand that stuff, it really sort of feels like you've kind of cracked the code, you know, that a part of the world that seemed mysterious before, you suddenly sort of start to embrace, you know, sort of their their vocabulary of objects, their vocabulary of experiences, if that makes sense. And yeah. I, I just love I love trying to solve those little mysteries of life. When you started your YouTube channel, now you've been on YouTube for four years now, is that right? Yeah. What made you decide to go in this direction? Is this just something that you've always been fascinated with, always been teaching and you said, let me take it to this new medium? Or were you trying, did you kind of like find this as you were making videos? Yeah, I would say that I, it was definitely an evolution. I mean, it's even sort of ev evolving to this day. Like, I started my YouTube channel four years ago. I used to work, so my main job in life has been, I've been a political commentator up here in Canada on, uh -huh. in newspapers and on television. I used to do a lot more television. And I worked for a TV station uh, that shut down uh, four years ago. And then very abruptly, like the network just went out of business and so I was out of a job. Wow. And then I sort of started experimenting with YouTube and I was just doing it in a very experimental way. I would just do videos on basically anything that was on my mind or sort of that I thought I had enough knowledge about to make a video. But then I realized that, you know, my, my audience became quite international and it in part became quite um, comprised of people that were not Canadians, but were sort of fascinated with Canada. And yeah. so I sort of realized that I was sort of in this kind of role of being a kind of explainer type person, uh, sort of breaking down things about Canada that were of interest to people that were not from this country. And... And then as my sort of audience got more international, I got more demands to talk about different countries and like do something about this, do something about that, like talk about the different X of the world. And so I started doing more videos to sort of pander to, to sort of that base. And uh, yeah, and then that just sort of, I looked at sort of, you know, as, as it always is the case, you look at the sort of videos that really seem to be taking off. And right. when I would do videos that were kind of of a sort of world survey style, like national anthems of the world, money of the world, uh, flags of the world, like those were the ones that really seemed to be uh, taking off and, uh, and sort of generating that kind of broad sort of international audience that I think is a good kind of audience to have. So yeah, I mean, I, I still do, though, feel some tension in my channel because as much as I like doing these kind of cultural videos, a lot of people are really interested in in politics, in political commentary, which is sort of my first right. my first realm. I'm trying not to do a lot of political commentary as such. I prefer more to just do commentary on politics and pol commentary on governments. So like you can talk, I mean, and this is this is an interesting sort of challenge, is to talk about government and talk about politics as sort of manifestations of culture and cultural identity and national identity and sort of part of the, the story of any, of any community without getting into the kind of off-putting 
biased commentary or ideological commentary, partisan stuff, you know, that people really, I think, are rightfully repulsed from. And I have no desire to be that kind of YouTube channel. But it's definitely a tension, you know? Right. Yeah. So it's more like looking at this is this is how things are working. This is why it's happening rather than saying this is bad. Uh, we shouldn't be doing this uh, in terms of the political commentary that you do on your channel. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that like I would not want to get into the commentary where you're saying that, like, you know, specific politician X or Y is good or bad. I mean, I right. do that. Like I do that in my other life as a political commentator. But yeah. I've had a desire to keep my YouTube channel somewhat somewhat different. So I think that like you can talk about things like you can talk about like, well, why does a country have, you know, this many political parties and what do the different political parties represent? And what does that say about the nature of that society? Or you can say, you know, this is sort of how their constitution works and, you know, who their leaders are and why their government is structured in this kind of way. And that can be, you know, that can be a good or bad thing. And you can have some degree of commentary about that. But this is kind of trying to do a, a little bit more uh, detached sort of analysis as opposed to sort of getting down into the uh, into the weeds of who, yeah, like which political leader, you know, you like more or less, which political party or even like which kind of like day-to-day -day policies of day-to-day -day government. You sort of don't really have opinions on that. You're trying to take more of the meta the meta look. And I think it's in part because I've been like a biased political commentator for most of my professional life that I'm actually a little bit better at being impartial, hopefully, because you yeah. sort of know what switch to turn off in your own mind. Right, right. Well, like today you came out with uh, describing everyone running for prime minister of Canada. I haven't I, I didn't see it up until right before we recorded it. So I haven't had time to watch the whole thing. But uh, that that race is heating up. When is the election? It's on October 21st. Okay, wow. So very, pretty quick. Very, very soon. But they, the, the way the prime minister is elected is different than the president in the United States, right? Well, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, I, I would like to do a video on this someday because it's an yeah. interesting thing, right? Because neither Americans nor Canadians elect their leader directly, right. right? So it's like in America, you vote for the Electoral College, which then appoints the president. In Canada, we vote for a parliament that then elects the prime minister. Right. So it's, it's, it's sort of similar in that way. I mean, obviously, the parliament of Canada remains an engaged part of the government after the initial election of the, of, the, of the leader of the government, whereas the Electoral College in the US basically only has one role and then everybody forgets about it. Right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, there is in many ways sort of more similarities than differences, I think. And certainly when it comes to sort of Canada versus America stuff, I, I tend to like to focus more on the similarities because I think there's enough Canadians out there that will talk your ear off talking about how Canada's different and in their mind yeah. superior to the US, but, you know. Yeah, which is funny because you never, I mean, obviously, you never hear the reversal from Americans. We, we're, it's, Canada's kind of like, oh, yeah, it's there. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you, you talk to people or you're watching YouTube videos, for example, and someone, you, you just assume, oh, they're American because the dialect is so similar. And then they say a boot and you're like, wait a second, <laughs> what, what's going on? You're like, oh, yeah, there's another country up there. Uh, well, I mean, it's 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 there's a saying that says that sort of Americans are sort of, uh, you know, like Americans are are benevolently ignorant of Canada, right. but right. Canadians are malevolently well informed about the US, <laughs> which is, you know, and it's true. It's like, you know, Canadians and I talk about this a lot in my channel, right? Like Canadians derive so much of their identity by being anti-American by being in their minds superior to America and that is just such a huge component of what it means to be Canadian it's like a fact that is just always looming and so large in the Canadian psychology and I would say to a very destructive uh, effect whereas Americans you're right like they don't really think much about Canada and to the extent they do think about Canada they think of Canada as a friendly kind you know lovely place you know right, I yeah. never meet Americans you know whenever I meet Americans they're always like oh Canadians you people are so nice and so friendly and I went you know I I went up to Vancouver once for a holiday and it was so beautiful and what a wonderful country and you have guys have everything figured out up there and blah, 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 you know and yeah. it's like you know it's it's very charitable and it's very kind and I wish that Canadians could be that way about Americans but instead they're not instead you know Canadians will say like oh America couldn't pay me to live there all the shoot you up with guns and then you have to pay so much for your health care and blah 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 like these kind of negative stereotypes are just really exhausting to me so right I, I I have really no interest in that. And I'm actually happy that I've been successful despite being an anti or a, a, a non-stereotypical Canadian in some ways. Whereas it, while, while 
the Canadians say you couldn't pay me to live in America. Over, over here, it's more like if the wrong person wins this election, I'm moving to Canada. It's like, that'll be my savior. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the great empty threat of American yeah. politics. <laughs> yeah, they, they never move, but it's, all, it's, all, it's an option. Uh, yeah. I've only been to Canada once. I went with the French club in high school, and we went to Quebec City during the carnival. Yeah. Which it was very cool. Obviously, going to Quebec City is a, it's a very different experience than going to the rest of Canada. But it was right before the invasion of Iraq, and so there oh, was yeah. a lot there was a lot of protests. And our teacher was like, "Don't tell anyone you're American. Just pretend you're Canadian." And we're like, <laughs> "Okay." And I remember very distinctly there, us passing this protest. Two things I remember. I was, well, three things. Passing this protest where they were like burning an American flag. I remember very distinctly this kid in front of me. Uh, I don't know how old he was, teenager who had a backpack, and on the back he had written "F America" and drew two uh, fists with the middle finger sticking up. And I was like, "Wow, that is that is commitment to your uh, point of view to to draw this on the back of your backpack." And then uh, the McDonald's downtown had been egged, or mm. MacDo's as they call it up there. Um, what did what did how did that impact your sort of thinking about Canada going it, forward? Well, I I feel like I'm able to kind of I think I've separated like French Canada from the rest of it. So I think I was like, okay, so the French Canadians hate us. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem like the most friendly place. I mean, I, given the time, I understand why because it was like you know on the brink of uh, an invasion into another country, um, but. Yeah, I, I feel like it, it overall made me feel like people don't always view us as the good guys. Because as Americans, I think we always just figure, yeah, we're the good guys. We're always on the right side of history. And it's difficult to imagine that anyone could have a negative view towards America or Americans, even though even though lots of Americans are kind of like, oh, this this place, you know, isn't so great. We're not the greatest country. But it's a lot different when you see people who are not from here at all, who are like just, it's part of their identity, I guess. Part of, part of their worldview is that uh, America is a negative influence. So it was kind of, on the one hand, it was generally eye-opening to realize, oh, there are people who have diametrically opposed opinions to mine. And in terms of my view towards Canada, I think I, I, I realized that, I think I started to realize that kind of anti-American sentiment that's part of being Canadian, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do you, uh, how has that uh, impacted, uh, like, watching my videos as well? Do you feel like that that has sort of clarified things at all? Yeah, I was like, oh, this guy, <laughs> it was nice to to find your videos and be like, oh, this guy doesn't hate America. Like, in, in one of your videos, you talk about how you are pro-American, and which is kind of uh, not typical for Canadians. It was also interesting to hear your videos explaining why there is that anti-American sentiment because it's like a way of uh, defining Canada and making sure it doesn't slowly get absorbed into the United States. Which yeah, is so I mean, something I never thought about before. Well, it's 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 strange because like you know in some ways Canada might be the most anti-American country in the world, and like not in the sense that like you know we're going to be setting off bombs and killing right. Americans or something like that. You know, it's different than you know sort of like the radical terrorist anti-Americanism. But it's anti-Americanism in the sense that like Canada only exists to be like an un-American country, right? right? Because you know we live on the same continent, we have the same history, you know, we have broadly the same culture. You know, and the only thing that separates us is this big sort of straight ruler line across the continent, right? Yeah. And so if you live in Canada, you know, if you live in America, like, you know, whatever, you live in the biggest, most important country in the world, it's very self-evident why America should <laughs> exist, right? You know, if you live in Canada, you live in this smaller, you know, less important, less sort of understood and popular country, you know, popular in the sense of being well-known, that's just to the north of this big, important country, and then... I don't know, you don't really, it's not always at all evident why Canada exists. And so as a result, this has always been the case for like centuries now. You know, people have to come up with a rationalization of why Canada exists, why there has to be a separate country named Canada that is not part of a larger, more important, wealthier country that in some ways is virtually indistinguishable from us. And the only real way that you can come up with a clear Canadian identity that is consistent over time is just by defining yourself 
through what you're not. And what you're not is you're not an American, ergo you're a Canadian. And you know, that identity has shifted. And I, I did a video where I talked about this, like, you know, sometimes that's been a sort of more left-wing identity as it is now. But uh -huh. in the past, sometimes that's been a more right-wing identity, right? Like that there's been times where, you know, Canadians in, in the past would have been happy that they were like more racist than Americans were, <laughs> right? Like that there was a time when Canadians would have said that like, you know, Canada's a great country because we have fewer, you know, black people and Mexicans and Jews, you know, we're a much whiter country. Nowadays, a lot of Canadians would say, well, Canada's great because we have so much diversity and that we have less racism than the US. We all right. get along here, right? So it's 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 all very sort of fluid and 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 I think, you know, quite empty in a lot of ways. And and but the question of like what would be a better sort of national identity for Canada is a very difficult question to answer. And I'm not I'm not really convinced that I have a right one. I mean I think that when I talk about like, you know, cultures and this kind of thing, I'm much more inclined to sort of embrace the aspects of Canada that are the same as America and to sort of say that we can have a common culture and that's not a bad thing. Like I'm not offended by the fact that, you know, Canada has a, you know, McDonald's on every street corner and we right. all eat hamburgers and, you know, watch Netflix, right? Like that doesn't bother me because I think that it's it's logical that as two very similar peoples we'd have similar cultural tastes and because we evolved together. Like, you know, there this magic line dividing the continent hasn't been very consequential for most of history. It's been consequential for the two governments on either side, but for the people, not so much. And it is kind of like a, how do I describe this? That, that sentiment of needing to establish identity to be separate from the United States, I guess in many ways comes from that similarity and that, like you said, we both come from the same roots. And was it, was it one of your videos where I learned this, where it's like during the American Revolution, the Canadian provinces or whatever they were called at the time were like, now nah, we're, we're going to sit this one out. Whereas they could have, they could have joined in that if I'm, yeah. if I'm recalling that correctly. And, uh, we speak the same language. We are both, uh, countries with a lot of, uh, immigrant populations. So there's a lot of similarities so that it, it kind of comes down to, we have to find something to set us apart. It's more like you need to dig your heels in uh, because if you don't, what el what else is there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like if you've ever <laughs> if you've ever met identical twins before, they are often very uh, defensive about how different they are because right. they are very threatened by the idea that they're indistinguishable and that they'll. In fact, sometimes identical twins, and this is like a well documented sort of psychological phenomenon. <laughs> oftentimes, identical twins will deny even being identical twins. Like they'll say, "We're not identical twins. We're fraternal twins. We're actually very different, and you just can't tell because you know <laughs> we're or whatever, right?" And I right. think like there's a lot of sort of psychological similarities between Canada and America in that kind of way. Like Canada has a lot of sort of little brother syndrome and a lot of insecurities because and I mean like it's it's not unlike you know there's been sort of other analogies to this like the Scotland versus England has a similar sort of dynamic Ireland versus the rest of the UK or I should not the rest of the UK the UK yeah like I think even I think even like southern Americans versus northern Americans have a similar sort of complex what often happens is that if you're the smaller society if you're the less successful society you know in terms of your your sort of uh, your global power or your sort of uh, commercial power, you know, technological influence, cultural influence around the world, this kind of thing. If you have less of that, oftentimes the tendency is to really double down on a sense that you're morally superior, right? So right. Canada is not as, I think by no measure is Canada as important a country as the US, like just objectively speaking, like, you know, we didn't invent the internet or the telephone or the airplane or, you know, we didn't make Hollywood, like, you know, we didn't, uh, we don't have the biggest army in the world, we're a less important country. But as a result, Canadians really have to double down and say, yeah, we might be less important, but you know, we're morally superior. So right. it's like we we're like a more caring society. We're more ethical, you know, we're more compassionate, we're less racist, right? Like you can go on and on and on and on. And I think that that's always been a theme of Canada. I mean, we've defined morality different over the centuries, right. but there's always been that that need for a sense of moral superiority. Whereas Americans, I think don't have that attitude. They don't view themselves. Oh, well, I mean, they probably do to some degree. Yeah. But I think that 
I think that Americans, but I think that like what you said before is that there is a real tendency in America, as much as there is the kind of like the stereotypical rah-rah USA, USA sort of culture, there's also a, a culture of a lot of self-criticism in America and a sort of introspection and a lot of concern that like, you know, America's not living up to its own ideals and America is not as perfect as it should be. And, you know, it's like, what's the famous line in America? Like, you know, the more perfect union, like the idea that America is always a sort of a project right. in place. And I like that. I think that's very compelling. Whereas I think that Canadians often can be quite smug and superior and self-satisfied and think that we've basically got everything worked out. So there's no reason to sort of uh, complain too much. Right. They're like, we're good. We're, <laughs> we're fine the way we are. Yeah, Although, yeah, yeah. I mean, even within Canada, though, there is this uh, tension between uh, the English speaking and the French speaking uh, portions of of Canada, and you have yourself been, uh, if I remember correctly, been denounced by uh, the Quebec Parliament. Is that right? <laughs> yes, that is true. That's sort of my uh, my most infamous moment. Um, <laughs> Quebec, um, Quebec, French Canada is very different from the rest of Canada. Like they have different history, they have very different culture. I mean, and it's the culture of basically, you know, a, a large. Uh, you know, close to a quarter of the country that is of a different sort of European ancestry, sort of French ancestry, and have basically refused for like 300 years to assimilate into the larger English-speaking culture of the majority of North American society. Yeah. And they're very proud of that and very defensive of that. And, and you know, you can argue about whether that's a good or bad thing. But one thing that it certainly has manifest is that their, their culture is very different. And, and a lot of times... Like, sort of the assumptions that French Canada operates on are not necessarily the same assumptions that sort of broader English North America operates on. And one of them is a kind of sense of cultural chauvinism, if I can call it that. A sort of sense that, like, you know, French European culture is good unto itself. And that sort uh -huh. of the object of the Quebec government, the Quebec state, Quebec society is to preserve French European culture in some way or another in this little small part of North America. And they would say that like, you know, by preserving that, you know, we're sort of upholding our legacy of survival in the face of assimilation and, you know, things of that sort, right? Yeah. But, you know, the other side of that is that there has been that has caused, as I think anybody would expect, a lot of sort of racial, cultural sort of tension between people who live in Quebec who are not part of the French-Canadian sort of ethnic majority, mm -hmm. right? And so I once wrote an article in which I talked about that. I mean, it's kind of complicated to sort of relitigate, but I, right. I wrote an article that was quite critical of, of some of the ways that sort of French-Canadian chauvinism has, has uh, manifest over the years and the degree to which... Quebec has experienced a lot of political violence in a way that a lot of other parts of the country have not. There have been a lot of sort of in, in my own lifetime, there have been a number of, you know, high profile, you know, killers, mass shooters of one form or another who have often rationalized their violence in sort of a political way. Either they were French Canadian supremacists or they were minorities who felt aggrieved by French Canadian supremacy as they saw it. And so mm. they, they lashed out in some violent form or another. And I wrote an article about this, you know, that was sort of critical of the way that sort of Quebec seems to produce a disproportionate amount of, of Canada's uh, politicized violence. And, you know, the French or the Quebec parliament and all of the sort of the Quebec political parties were all very offended by this and, you know, got very righteous and indig indignant and they passed a resolution denouncing me. This was not really seen as that big of a deal outside of Quebec, in part because this is something that I think many English Canadians are very familiar with. You know, the stereotype of Quebecers is that they're very sensitive to criticism, mm -hmm. particularly criticism from, from English Canadians. And so as a result, there is, and I, I wrote, I think I wrote about this, or I or made a video about it or something, was that, um, you know, that there's a long sort of track record of, of the Quebec government sort of engaging in these kind of like theatrical denunciations of people that criticize. Right. Uh, Quebec society, French Canadian society, and and like, but this is like an example. Like this is this is something that is very, I think, seems very strange to American audiences, to American eyes. You know, the idea that governments sort of denounce their critics, because I think like <laughs> Americans are very critical of each other and different aspects of of themselves, right? You know, like a lot of Americans, I think, like are pretty contemptuous of the South, right? The U.S. Right. South is like it's common to stereotype that as being a very backwards, racist, you know, bad part of the country. Mm. But I don't think that like one expects, you know, the parliament or the congress or whatever of alabama to be like spending its time denouncing all of its critics right yeah yeah we, i think if an american if a state government were to denounce someone i would find it very odd it'd be like what is what is happening here it surprised me to hear that quebec would 
take the time to uh, denounce a journalist. I mean, what is what does that even mean? Do they put up your picture in the Montreal airport and say, don't <laughs> don't let this guy in? Well, that's that's the thing, right? Like it, it is very sort of theatrical and it's not really in the service of anything. I mean, I was obviously able to visit Quebec. I remember when it was happening at the time, I actually like sent an email to the Quebec uh, Minister of Culture, who I think was the person who was sort of the instigator of this. And like, she just didn't respond to the email. Like, they were not interested in, like, I wasn't like informed in any way about <laughs> this. Like, this was just like, I was just kind of like a symbol to them. And it's important in their culture, I think, to engage in these sort of theatrical exercises of, of sort of denouncing the, uh, the bad people. Because, you know, I think that there is a bit of a persecution complex. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, un, not insensitive to that. I think that when you study Canadian history, you're aware of the degree that the French Canadians were, you know, an impressed and marginalized people for a large part of this country's right. history, right? But at the same time, you know, I think the French Canadians are doing pretty well now. I mean, we've had a, a large number of French Canadian prime ministers and, you know, Supreme Court justices and governor generals and, you know, senior bureaucrats and people in the military. Like, Canada has changed a lot, but there is still this this sort of sense of, of persecution and and... And, you know, and using the idea that, you know, they control the Quebec government and thus the Quebec government is sort of the instrument that they use to sort of voice their their grievances. I mean, this is all very controversial. I mean, to you, this sounds very sort of, yeah, I'm, like, I'm sure, <laughs> whatever. But it's like, you know, I'm even like as I'm saying these things, like I'm very sensitive to the way that they would be perceived in, in, in a Canadian context, which is a very sort of delicate place. Yeah, well, I, I know that I do have uh, some Canadian and French Canadian uh, listeners. So just just so you listeners know, we love you. We're <laughs> we're just talking about stuff here. There is kind of an interesting um, parallel, though. You brought up like the political violence, and you know, in America, it seems like the El Paso shooter from what was it a month ago or whatever in his manifesto was talking about the Hispanic population trying to take over America or whatever or Texas I see this this uh, uh, I guess conflict between this sense of wanting to preserve a culture the way it is and then wanting the on the other hand having things assimilate naturally so I do see in America how there are people who are threatened by increasing immigrant populations and especially with the the issue of Spanish becoming more prevalent as a language and people get some people can get very touchy and sensitive about it when you know there's a sign that has a Spanish translation on it or something like that so it's it's one of those interesting things about having which is is unique to Canada and the US having different cultures having to live together and this question of how much should they assimilate? Should how much should they retain kind of their original cultural identity? What does it mean to be American or Canadian? And uh, the, it's it's like a question that seems to have no real answer because you'll get both extremes uh, saying that they're right. You know? Yeah. No. It, it is definitely one of the big sort of challenges of of our time, isn't it? Because I think that sort of there's a kind of bluff that's being called, if I can put it that way. So it's like historically, both Canada and America, more so America than Canada, have you know welcomed a lot of immigrants and sort of embraced a kind of melting pot sort of attitude, where there's you know that you can be of any background, you can be of any sort of community, and then you can sort of become part of the big American family, and the American family is diverse, and you know includes a lot of diversity. And I think that's always sort of been the, the official story. But what we're seeing now is I think that the level of diversity is getting to the point where people that, you know, sort of the sort of the white Anglo Protestant majority is now feeling sort of like threatened in a way that it didn't previously. Right. right. So it's like in the old days, you know, that there'd maybe be, you know, a few immigrant families in your neighborhood or whatever. And, and they were sort of small and marginal enough that they didn't seem like that they were a threat to the dominance of the of the majority community. Community. But now, you know, you're seeing projections and, you know, like there's already a number of states where sort of white Anglos are in the minority mm -hmm. or at least are only in the plurality. You know, states like California and Texas and New Mexico and, and places like this, like they're diversifying at a very rapid pace. And so that, as I think, sort of making making a lot of people question the degree to which sort of America's embrace of multiculturalism was ever sort of 
Like, to what extent it was done in, in good faith or to what extent it was done only to the extent that it, it didn't feel threatened, right? If that makes right. sense. Like, when the, when the groups are small enough, it's very easy for everybody to be say, yeah, diversity, immigrants, great. You know, but then the sense that once those numbers sort of start to rise a bit and then the, sort of the dominance of the group that had taken its dominance for granted becomes a little bit threatened, then suddenly you get people's backup. And then suddenly they're saying, like, actually, no, America is not about <laughs> diversity. America is about, like, the supremacy of this one very particular group who we always assumed would just be in charge forever. And I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tension, right? And I think that I think it's very difficult to escape that tension because I think that you look around the world and you do see a lot of groups that are used to having the country defined in their identity when groups sort of start to, uh, when the numbers start to be there where that group's sort of supremacy is threatened, that is when you get defensiveness. And I think that we in Canada and America are better equipped to deal with that. You know, I remember when I... I I went to Sweden recently, you know, and, and there's a sort of stereotype in, in sort of the West that you hear that Sweden is threatened by all of these Muslim immigrants and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I asked, I was once in a bar and I was talking to this guy who was, you know, I would say quite racist. And I said to him, <laughs> Should, tell me, like, where is the worst neighborhood in Sweden with the immigrants? And then he was like, oh, he gave me like a list. And he said, you've got to go to these neighborhoods. Like the Muslims have just completely taken over. Uh -huh. And I went, I went to the neighborhoods and it's like, you know, yeah, they were like Muslim neighborhoods. Like there was lots of Arab Arab immigrants and it was like Arab restaurants and stuff but it just seemed like a, an immigrant neighborhood that you'd see in Canada or America and not feel threatened by because we're just used to those kind of neighborhoods existing right. but in a country like Sweden where they have no history of that at all mm -hmm. it becomes seen as like extremely threatening and extremely weird and it's like these people are colonizing our land and this kind of stuff so I do think that like Canada and America are never going to get to that point like we do have an advantage over the rest of the world in the sense that we're more used to diversity and so I think we can engage with it in a way that is much more mature and less hysterical but at the right. same time like I said, you know, the, the trend lines, the pressures that are being placed on, on our country in terms of the amount, our countries, in terms of the amount of diversity and the degree that that diversity threatens the dominance of, of the historically supreme group, that is very unusual. And that is something that no, nowhere else in the world really has to deal with at the same magnitude. And so that is a challenge that I think both of our countries face. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, our two countries have never been like truly homogenous in the way that those European countries have been. So that that is uh, an interesting side of it that we we can deal with it. And then the question comes up with because we have always been a kind of a melting pot to whatever whatever that means. Uh, when you have these cultures, these com kind of competing cultures, and the the idea that whatever the majority ethnicity or culture would be, if that shifts, what is the importance of having? commonalities in culture to kind of bind a nation together, whether that be just language or whatever else. I hear a lot of arguments from people who are kind of anti-immigrant who are like, a country can't, isn't really going to be able to stay together if it becomes too fractured uh, culturally, if there are too many different competing cultures, I guess. Um, but I, I wonder, and I wonder what you think, like, what what is really important to uh, an identity of a nation? And does culture, does culture matter that much, do you think? Um, well, I think that, I think that, I mean, one of the sort of my thesis, one of my big sort of theories of culture is that culture describes the lived experiences of a people, right? Yeah. So like culture is something that manifests in an observable day-to-day experience, right? So if I go to, you know, your city and I live there long enough, like we were talking about before, like that there's certain sort of shared experiences that come to define the reality as it manifests in terms of, you know, not just uh, not just like the geography and the landscape and, and the people, but also, you know, like little jokes and foods and symbols and, you know, mm -hmm. just the different things that you can take for granted that become part of a sort of shared vocabulary of experiences and, and objects and, and signifiers. And I think that one of the one of the challenges of diversity is that if you have a large country in which those kind of experiences become so distinct from one another, like if you grow up in one community and all of your sort of shared experiences and things that you take for granted and sort of your lived experiences are so different from someone who lives in a different community within the same country, then that becomes very difficult to sustain uh, a sort of sense of commonality. Because then when you sort of say like, you know, we may all be, you know, we're all Americans, we're very different in many ways, but you know, we all 
understand the significance of X, Y, and Z. Like we can all sort of bring yeah. that up. We all and go we to all McDonald's sort of, and Starbucks. Yeah, you know, and I mean, like it's 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 always difficult to get too much into the specifics of this kind of thing because they come off as being very frivolous. Yeah. But I think that these things like are not necessarily frivolous, right? Like if you sort of say like you know in America like going to these uh, these fairs, you know, is very American sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like the county fair or you know the fair where you get the 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 roller coasters and the cotton candy and you know things like that. Like yeah. that would be an example of a kind of like American sort of cultural experience but like let's say if you had a huge component of americans that just had no familiarity with that at all like who didn't know what cotton candy or roller coasters were at all then you would sort of say like that seems like part of the american identity is starting to break down a little bit because i think that what it requires is that you have to have an ability for some experiences to be able to serve as kind of bridges between cultures Mm -hmm. you know like if you have something like the county fair as a very stereotypical american idea you know like black Americans, white Americans, Latino Americans, you know, Asian Americans, like in theory, everyone can sort of unify behind something like that. It can be a sort of shared cultural space, shared experience. Now, that would be my theory of it. Like I would see something like that as a kind of neutrally American experience. And like while you're at the county fair, let's say, you know, there could be a a guy that's selling churros. There could be a guy that's selling, you know, wontons, you know, there's a selling like, you know, that there's an, and that's kind of like the American melting pot idea that all the cultures can sort of commingle and, and sort of learn and experience and integrate in that kind of way. But if you have an experience where like groups of Americans just live completely isolated from each other, do not commingle, and in fact are aggressively disinterested in commingling, then that is a sort of new threat to sort of the American idea. And you know, all of this manifests in Canada as well, so I shouldn't portray it like it's a uniquely American difficulty. So I, I do think that it behooves all of us, if we're interested in making a sort of diverse society work, is that we have to be able to make the case for uh, co-mingling, you know, shared experiences, opportunities to get to know one another. And it goes both ways, right? Like it is not, and I know that's like sometimes sort of like Anglo white Americans feel very threatened by this because they feel like, you know, they have to do everything on the terms of the minorities. And I'd say like, no, I think that, you know, minorities have an obligation to sort of uh, try to co-mingle with people different from themselves as well. I think that you try to embrace a sort of broad sense of understanding and sympathy and empathy and learning and education and fascination. And that's ultimately how you can make a society that that uh, that can function. Right. So it's not about just like giving up, giving up on some kind of identity, but it's it's about having these touchstones that we can all relate to and say, yeah, we all come together here. We all can relate to this. But it's interesting that even just take even immigration out of the picture, at least in the United States. I don't know if you have this issue in Canada, but there does seem to be a a kind of moving further away of certain parts of the country where it's like on the coasts you have a very uh, kind of insulated cultural experience that's very different from the middle of the country. And that comes up a lot when politics is being discussed, where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, the the elites on the coast are, are out of touch with middle America and what, you know, the everyday farmer in Kansas thinks. But you could you could look back at the founding of the country and, and realize that uh, the 13 colonies, when they came together, didn't really consider themselves to be one nation anyway. They they all were very proud of being Virginian or, you know, Georgian or whatever. And they were all distinct in their own right. And it wasn't until much later, like the Civil War, where it became more of like, no, we're one country. Mm. Yeah. So it, it, it I, f- I feel like that fracturing could happen even just staying the way we are. Well, it, it's interesting because I, I think that, yeah, the Civil War was a big thing. I think that also, though, a big factor was just sort of the rise of new technologies. Uh, so yeah. in the sense that, like, once you have mass media, it is much easier to create a sort of unified giant country, right? Like, I mean, on some level, like, it's it's amazing that countries as big as Canada and America can even exist. Like, these are countries that are, like, bigger than the biggest empires of, of years past. Right. And they still function. But that's in part because, you know, you have things like television, you have things like, you know, you know, book publishing, newspaper publishing, you know, you have the telephone, you know, you have all of these sort of, like, modern uh, conveniences that, that are able to create important cultural institutions that can be unifying forces, you know? People of all ethnicities in America can, you know, read the same comic books and sort of get a sense of American identity from that. They can watch the same movies. You know, Hollywood has been a tremendously unifying force in in America in sort of creating a sense of cultural 
commonality. But the problem now, though, is that we're kind of swinging in a, in a different direction now because now the technology has gotten so sophisticated that you can create hyper niche technological communication spaces, uh, yeah. right? So you can create movies and books and and uh, television stations and of course internet uh, communities right. and internet websites that only narrowly service a very uh, very particular sort of niche community and i mean this this happens on a whole different level i mean like there's obviously there's politically tailored networks for one experience or another but there's also you know like ethnically uh, tailored networks you can listen to music or or the radio or television only in your own language and not sort of have to uh, to learn another one. And I think that that becomes a very big challenge too, is that this mass media that we've, that Americans have traditionally relied on to, to be a sort of bridge force in the society is now actually being a source of division and is allowing people to sort of stay in, uh, in culturally isolated communities, however you want to define culture in that sense. And I, I, I do think that that, Again, like <laughs> we need to sort of create new communication uh, equivalents of the county fair. You know, do we right. have sort of communication uh, uh, experiences that can unite people? Do we have websites that everyone can agree on? Do we have television stations that everyone can agree on? Do we have cultural uh, phenomenons like movies and and uh, and other sort of pop culture things that everyone can agree on? But that's one of the challenges too. Is that increasingly, like any time you try to present something as being a unifying thing, people are really quick in America to tear it down and to say, like, no, this is not for us all. This is only for that kind of person. And, you know, right. it's sort of the politicization of things. It happens on both the right and the left, you know. The right will say, oh, it's just some sort of urban elite thing, kind of like what you were alluding yeah. to before. Coastal elite culture being shoved down our throats. And then the, uh, the left wing will say, oh, this is just a tool of, you know, Anglo white supremacy and you know it's not actually inclusive and it's isolating all of these marginalized communities and and that those two sort of both forces and I think yeah like I said both right and left have a lot to atone for as far as that goes because they're both a large source of disunity and, and breaking down a sort of sense of commonality for sort of short-term political gain. Yeah, the the irony here being that you have something like YouTube, for example, where you have access to the breadth of different viewpoints and perspectives, yet there's so much out there that you could just stay in your own little bubble and be like, I'm only going to watch people I already agree with who tell me that every other opinion is wrong. Of course, the YouTube algorithm will just rec keep recommending more and more that's similar. You'd almost think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I have all this information now, so I can be more understanding of other perspectives. But uh, it seems the to problem is that we, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, like the problem is is that uh, you self curate, right? Right. Like you know, like in the old days, like if you had a television station. You know, they used to have like concepts like, you know, the fairness doctrine. I don't know if you've heard of this before, right? Where it's like the television stations used to be required by law to express diversity of opinion yeah. on television, right? So if you put a left-wing guy on, you'd have to put a right-wing guy on for equal amount of time, right? And like, you know, you could say, and like a lot of people made a fair argument that like this was kind of like anti- you know, it's like anti-consumer because, like, the consumer shouldn't be forced to consume products that they don't want. Right. You know, if the if the guy only wants to hear a Democrat talking, then it should be his right as a consumer to only, you know, watch a Democrat station. And, like, fine, like, that was obviously the argument that won, but there's obviously been a cost to that as well because now, whereas in the old days, like, diversity of opinion certainly – would be something that you were kind of like forcibly exposed to. Now we have more individual freedom, more individual liberty to sort of curate our own experiences, only subscribe to the channels you want. And these can be nicher and nicher and nicher and nicher and more and more and more and more specific until you're basically servicing, you know, rather small communities. But that has a cost as well. And I think like one, one thing that I've really come to understand about politics and life and culture in general is that everything has trade-offs. Like there are not perfect solutions to any problem. And that a lot of sort of coming to good uh, outcomes requires being honest that you have to make sacrifices in order to achieve a sort of greater good. And that that greater good will not necessarily be great for everyone all of the time. Right. But, you know, and I think that that's kind of the dishonesty of a lot of sort of these 
sort of the moment that we're living is that when you are in these niche communities, they tend to wallow in a sense of superiority and a sense of sort of righteous, uh, you know, satisfaction and think like, we've got it all great. Everybody on the outside is bad. And all we need to do is just keep doubling down, doubling down, doubling down, doubling down. And then somehow we'll achieve utopia because we'll just ultimately, you know, crush our enemies with, you know, the sheer force of our uh, strength of will. Right. And that's just, you know, it's, it's, it's deeply unsatisfying. And I do think that YouTube is, is, is a big problem with this. And that's why I try as much as I've been like a biased sort of political person in, in my own life. And I, I think that there's certainly still place for political disagreement, but I do try to be a unifying person as much as I can be. I know that sounds righteous, but <laughs> it is something that I take seriously. As, as someone who has consumed many of your videos, I feel like you do a pretty good job of staying middle of the road and presenting uh, different sides of things in a fair way without making it seem like this is the correct opinion that you should be <laughs> should be feeling. The other side of uh, what you're bringing up with, you know, these these different factions who are have this moral superiority is they also seem to be very quick to run to a kind of martyrdom where it's like they're after us, you know, it's like mm. everyone's against us and th we're getting attacked and the other side isn't. Um and you see that you see that on both sides, all sides of of these political arguments, <laughs> I feel like. Yeah, yeah. You know, like a, a good example of this, I feel, is this whole business about YouTube demonetizing channels. Yeah. Like I've been wanting to make a video about this because I think this is like really quite fascinating because like if you live exclusively in right wing YouTube world, you are fed a diet that YouTube only demonetizes right wingers because YouTube is like threatened by right wing opinions and like yeah. YouTube is trying to squash them. But then if you lived in left wing world, you hear the exact same thing. Like left <laughs> YouTube is, is demonetizing left wing channels because YouTube can't handle these left-wing opinions and is trying to crush them for their, you know, corporate masters or whatever. Right. But then when you're like in, in LGBT world or like sex positive world, you hear the same thing. Oh, they're demonetizing because like YouTube can't handle our alternative sort of sexuality, you know, frank talk and this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Like I'm sure, I don't know if this is the case in uh, in, your, in your world. Yeah, Myers-Briggs. Like they're coming after us. <laughs> they yeah. can't handle the Myers-Briggs. Well, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure like, you know, certainly in in channels that deal with like alternative medicine or, you know, yeah. it, that I'm sure that they have a whole persecution complex as well. So, but like the point is, is that all of these groups are independently coming up with theories to explain something that is obviously a rather broad phenomenon that yeah. is probably geared in like, you know, flaws in YouTube's algorithm, flaws in YouTube's like computer learning. And like, you know, it, it's like it's clearly a bigger phenomenon than any one particular community being targeted for who they are. But since all of these communities don't talk to each other and since they exist in these little bubbles of righteous, uh, you know, isolation, they are all you know it's like the um the famous uh anecdote about the blind man touching the elephant and then every blind man uh, thinks yeah. that you know he's seeing something different right because they lack the ability to to communicate as a whole yeah uh, you know i haven't had any trouble in my area of youtube with demonetization the youtube algorithm is pretty uh or when it comes to demonetization is pretty dumb though it's like i don't know what they're looking for i think one time I put the word idiot in a title, like I, the video was called Making an Idiot of Myself, and it got demonetized. And then I changed the title to Making a Fool of Myself, and what do you know, it became monetized. So it's like a lot of arbitrary banned words, and uh, I, feel, I feel like people lose sight of the fact that YouTube just wants to sell ad space, you know? <laughs> so it's like, yeah, if you have some kind of hyper-political channel or, you know, something that is not, not something that your everyday uh, advertiser is going to want to be associated with for fear of some kind of backlash, it makes sense that so many people get demonetized. And speaking of YouTube, I wanted to ask you about this since you uh, recently reached 100,000 subscribers and got that verification check mark. Uh, what do you think about that controversy recently where YouTube changed the verification system? I, I mean, I assume that you got that email, too, that says oh, you're not verified oh, yeah. anymore. Sorry. Um, yeah. do, what do you what do you think about all that? Because I, I made a video kind of kind of be like they're coming after us. But uh, <laughs> but I just wanted to hear what you thought about it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, I feel like I probably had the same reaction of a lot of people. Like, I kind of felt insulted and slighted and kind of shocked by it. You know, I'm, I'm verified on Twitter because I'm a journalist. And uh -huh. so 
like that was kind of galling to me as well. Like I kind of feel like, well, if I'm verified on Twitter, like clearly <laughs> no one should be doubting my credentials here. No, it's it's true. And I and I and I, you know, YouTube backed down. So I think that that's good. I think that that shows that they were receptive. And I think like it, it just never struck me as something that was very clearly justified either. Like the explanation that they offered for why they was why they were doing it didn't really make sense to me. Like that it was like that they were worried about impersonation or that like that sort of like the the credibility of celebrities or like the real important people somehow required de uh verifying sort of lesser people like i don't know like the the logic of it just did not make sense to me and that's why i think it came off as as being you know a very sort of like insensitive and tone deaf move and i'm, I'm glad that they sort of wisened up i don't know exactly what the compromise is going to be, though, because presumably whatever anxieties they had that were driving this policy are going to remain. And so, that, they, like I said before, like that there's always trade-offs in life. So I'm, I'm sort of curious as to how they're going to have to sort of square this circle and to what extent we are all going to, you know, for lack of a better term, like that we're, there's going to be some suffering involved, right? Like yeah. presumably, like, I don't know if that's going to mean that there's going to be like two tiers of verification or something, but my, but my thinking is just that like, it's not just going to be that we've heard the end of it now. Yeah. I mean, my understanding is that like we'll be grandfathered into it, but they'll basically be making the changes they wanted to make going forward. But they wouldn't be moving the goalpost for, but I don't. But how would that even work? I don't know. Because it seemed one of the things that I thought is that they seem to be saying we we think that you all viewers of YouTube think that the verification check mark is like a um, approval of the content of these videos, and we don't want you mm. to think that. But we still know that you th think that, so we're only going to give it to. Uh, like corporations and celebrities and such people that we would want you to unintentionally think that we approve of, <laughs> you know, so that, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this general feeling, you know, the, the persecuted independent creators uh, feel like YouTube just wants to focus on the corporations and whatever and, and uh, promote Will Smith and uh, Jimmy <laughs> Fallon and so on. I mean, I think YouTube is, I'm not like a doomer. There are a lot of people who are like, YouTube's dead, man. There's, it's over, yes. get out, find somewhere else. But I'm not that much of a doomsdayer, but I do think that it is, it's troubling the direction that they seem to want to go in, in terms of well, favoring corporations. It's, it's, it's kind of strange because like YouTube is just like such an unprecedented thing that exists. You know, I was at, I was at VidCon uh, a couple months ago. I don't, were you there? Uh, no, I wasn't. I saw your video okay. about it though. So I felt like I was there. Oh. Well, that's nice. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so like, um, one of the, one of sort of the things that really sort of stuck out in my mind is that John Green, you know, gives sort of keynote speech at the end, you know, one of the co-founders of VidCon. And, uh, he said that, there are now more YouTube channels with over a million subscribers than there were attendees at the first VidCon a decade ago. Wow. And like, that is like insane to me. Like when you think about like YouTube having to like runs this like, you know, communications thing, you know, it's like the equivalent of like, well, it's like a website basically where you can watch videos and they, it has like so many channels on it. It's like running a TV station that has like millions and millions of channels, right. which is like a staff of like, you know, millions of people, all of whom have to be placated, all of whom like are your tech, like in a way they're like your employees. They're the people that are generating the content. And it just seems so impossible to run a company like that, like that's so vast and so complicated and to keep everyone happy. And because you're dealing with entertainers, you know, you're dealing with a lot of <laughs> egos and, and, for sort of challenges like that. And that's why like you can understand that like on some on some like sort of business level, it makes sense for them to just deal with the established brands as much as possible and sort of treat, you know, sort of channels like yours and mine as, you know, important parts of the community, but certainly not the people that you're going to be making policy with in mind right. just because like we are we are smaller and we're much more difficult to deal with, right? right. <laughs> And I, I guess in the sense, like, we need YouTube much more than YouTube needs us. Right? right, exactly. And that's kind of, that's a difficult sort of thing to have to reconcile with. And I'm sure that, I don't know if you feel this way, but, like, I often have a bit of anxiety about YouTube in that way. Because, you know, I make a fair bit of my income from it. And 
you know, but like a demonetization can be a real blow. Yeah. Or like, you know, I've, I don't know about you, but like I've known people that have had channels deleted and, you know, things like that. Like it's, it's pretty scary. And, you know, every time I upload, I always have a little bit of anxiety. Like, is this video going to get demonetized? Is this video going to get me in trouble in some vague way for violating some vague rule? You know, particularly when I do videos about, uh, you know, sort of more politically contentious topics, oh, yeah. you know, which of course YouTube's under a lot of pressure to sort of get a handle on that kind of stuff. So it is, it can be a, it can be a, it's a, it's a difficult thing. And I think that it, we can't ever take it for granted that the YouTube of the future is going to exactly resemble the YouTube of today. This might just be a kind of wild west period that's going to get sorted out somewhere along the line. Yeah, that's true. You make a good point because YouTube wouldn't care if Frank James and J.J. McCullough stopped making videos tomorrow, but they would really care if Stephen Colbert uh, stopped uploading to YouTube. So it, yeah. it's like they and they never know, like independent creators could just quit at any time. So it, it does make sense that they wouldn't want to be totally focused on us rather than the corporations that you know will be here. It, it's also... Um, Wow, I just totally lost my train of thought. Um, the, <laughs> uh, the other, the growth of YouTube, yeah, like uh, even just like six or seven years ago, to reach a million subscribers was like a huge honking deal. But now it seems like there are so many subscribe, so many channels with a million subscribers. Um, you know, like in the YouTube Rewind video, I think they used to try to include everyone who had a million subscribers or more. And I think they still try to do that. But it's like so many people that you just, you get like these crowd shots. And it's like, <laughs> here's, all, here's all the people with a million subscribers. And it's like, I saw them for a half second and they're like coming at you uh, really fast. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's. The, like YouTube Rewind is kind of like a fascinating uh, case study of sort of like what we're talking about before. Like, you know, is it possible to create sort of like bridge cultural uh, institutions, right? Yeah. And like one of the problems that YouTube is experiencing now is that uh, YouTube is now like this global brand. Mm -hmm. And so it sort of has to create like bridge culture for the entire world, which is just such an impossible <laughs> assignment, right? So it's like YouTube Rewind somehow has to be a culturally unifying like cultural object for everyone in the world. It has to unify like Europeans, Americans, you know, Indians, Africans, Asians, like somehow you have to, and it's like, it's an impossible task, right? Yeah. And so I think that this is, this is a whole sort of problem, a problem as well. It's like the degree that you can sort of really truly run a kind of global corporation that has a cultural component to it. Whereas I think that like if YouTube sort of, you know, broke itself down and if like there was a clear delineation between like YouTube America versus YouTube Europe and YouTube, you know, Asia or whatever, like that might make things a little bit more manageable. And if there was like YouTube Rewind American Edition, you know, right, that yeah. might be a little bit easier. And I mean, like, but uh, sort of the thought that occurred to me as well is that uh, with the trade-offs and stuff, I guess on one hand, you have to be able to view like the popularity of things like Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel and channels like that on YouTube, as in some respects being, it can be a good thing because those are the channels that are getting the mad views. And even though that they are sort of, you know, corporate, whatever, they are much more sort of cultural uh, institutions of an older fashion sort that, you know, like millions of Americans from all walks of life are watching because, you know, they're just generic sort of comedy. They're about celebrities and, and that kind of stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that brings people together. Whereas a lot of these sort of niche YouTube channels, as much as like, you know, people like you and me that make them are very invested in them. You know, in some respects, you could also say that we are we are part of a sort of cultural problem in a way, <laughs> in the sense that we're creating these communities that are, are much more niche appeal and are thus much less likely to create the kind of unifying cultural experiences that are necessary in a big diverse country like ours. Yeah, that is a good point. And I've realized now that I am part of the problem. So, <laughs> well, we're all part of the problem. I am deleting I mean, my just, channel. You just have to be aware. <laughs> you just have to be aware of it, right? I mean, like your channel is better than most, though, because I mean, you're talking about something that has a mass appeal, which is, you know, the, the sort of the study of personalities and, and that sort of thing, right? Like in theory, there is there is. A, I mean, obviously, the Myers Briggs is kind of like a subculture yeah. within itself. And frankly, I've been surprised that your videos are as popular as they are. Uh, I like, am it's, too. <laughs> 
I mean, it's just, it's, it's fascinating to me because like, I'm always stumbling upon channels. Whoops. Sorry. I'm always stumbling upon channels that are like really popular. And it's like a window into a world that I just was not aware was a thing. Right? Yeah. So it's like, I was always aware that like Myers-Briggs is a thing, but I didn't realize that there's like people that are so invested in it and so literate in that world. Right. Yeah. Like you can make these videos about like the 16 personalities reacting to, you know, whatever. Yeah. And like, and I see in your comments and people are like, oh, yeah, that's such how he would be or like yeah. this is how so and so would be in that. And it's like it's it's really cool, but it's also like very it's very particular, right? Like it's yeah. it's and like and my channel's like no different, right? Like, you know, I've got lots of people that are willing to do deep dives in Canadian politics, which is not right. a mass appeal topic either, right? So it's it's pretty it's I don't know, like it's like I said before, it's like everything has sort of two sides to it. On the one side, it's like it's fascinating that people are able to geek out and really get so much out of a very narrowly particular experience. But the downside, too, is that these things become alienating and that they hit a ceiling of appeal and they sort of allow people to sort of wallow in a more particular identity rather than embracing a sort of larger identity where they can bond with something with more mass appeal and thus bring in a larger group of people. Right. That is one of the amazing things about YouTube is you you stumble on these channels and you're like, whoa, <laughs> there this this person has a huge audience and they're talking about something I've I don't care about at all yet all these <laughs> all these people love it. Um, or you are you the biggest? Sorry, sorry to cut you off. Are you the biggest Myers Briggs type guy, or is there a big sub, sub, subculture of this on YouTube? Uh, the, I mean, there is a big subculture, but I have the largest channel in this uh, subculture. Although there, you know, it is it's more of like uh, the big YouTubers all did like the Myers Briggs test as a video, so it is something that has reached the bigger YouTube world. Like you know, even you know PewDiePie and so on take the test. But um, it, of people who focus on it a lot, yeah, I'm the I'm the biggest channel, which I think says a lot about the niche is that it's not very big. It's very, and it's just uh, kind of getting started in a way. Mm. And uh, we're able to uh, dominate. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a I'm a trailblazer. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I we're we're coming to the end of our arbitrarily scheduled time. So uh, let me just ask you one more softball question on <laughs> on our way out so when you're right. not when you're not youtubing and uh journalizing what what do you what does jj mccullough like to do to relax for fun for your hobbies uh well i like to draw like that's kind of like my first great passion in life honestly is like drawing cartoons it's what i'm gonna do after <laughs> we finish this oh, yeah. because, uh, <laughs> it's the weekend and i don't often have time to draw very much anymore but it's something i really like to do I really like to to walk. <laughs> That's kind of a weird thing that, that I, I love to go for <laughs> long walks. I love to walk around the city, and I live in a quite nice part of Vancouver, so I like to go for for long walks and stuff. I don't know. I like I like to go to the mall. That's a very weirdly old fashioned kind of '90s thing yeah. that I like to do. But I love to hang out at the mall a lot. I like to see my friends. I like to go to restaurants. I don't have too many interesting hobbies, but I just like to be sort of out and about and be around people. That you know, you answered that question much better than I would, because I would say uh, nothing. I <laughs> I don't know what I do. JJ, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a great discussion. Perhaps it might be my most controversial podcast episode yet, though. I don't think we said anything that incendiary, but uh, hopefully not. You, you never know. So, <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, we'll have to do this again sometime in the future. For sure. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. There he goes. Thanks so much again to JJ for taking the time to come on the podcast. I had a really great time talking with him. And I hope you all out there in radio podcast land enjoyed it just as much. Make sure you check out his YouTube channel. The link will be in the description. But wait until you have some time because I found myself just watching video after video. And a big thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. And whatever platform you're listening on, whether it be SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, make sure you're following the podcast so you get notified when something new is posted. Next week, I, I have another guest lined up. We will be having another podcast next week. I'll be joined by musician, singer-songwriter Alana Boudreaux. We had a great conversation, and I'm really excited to post that episode. It'll be two great episodes back-to-back. -back. What do you know? Tune in next week and all that. <laughs>
I'm terrible at signing these things off, so we'll just end it there. Thanks for listening. Thank you.